this is the only movie out of this group that I had not seen before. Because this was the first time I saw it, I don't have a whole lot to say, except um, I was surprised by how much I loved it. And I was sorry that I took so long to see it. I think I'm not the biggest Tom Cruise fan, uh, but I think he's great in this. He's so good at showing a clever guy, but he's young and he's green. So he does a lot of stupid things. And Paul Newman is, is so good at like, okay, you're worth, you're worth me spending time to teach you things, but also you're an idiot. And I am a second away from walking out at any given moment. They have such a wonderful dynamic. So no, it, it's, it's a cool little ment- mentor, mentory road movie. Um, so yes, I, I, don't be like me. Even if you haven't seen The Hustler, just go on. It's a lot of fun. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by. So we are getting close to wrapping up our first month on Martin Scorsese. So we are taking a look today at The Color of Money and The Last Temptation of Christ. Clearly the two movies you should definitely watch back to back. Um, So, Mike, we're going to start with The Color of Money. Um, as you mentioned last week, this is kind of kind of a sequel uh, to a movie, I think, from 1961 called The Hustler, uh, which also starred Paul, Paul Newman in the same role. Um, and it's interesting you brought up, you know, a sequel in the right way because it's just like, you know, we're taking this same actor uh, many years later and he's playing the same character. But a lot of the reviews I read for this movie uh, called it like, you know, they said it was pretty good, but it was like a lesser movie than what it was based on, than, than the original uh, film, The Hustler. So I've never seen The Hustler, so it made me wonder if this movie works better if you haven't. Because I really enjoyed, I feel like I saw this when I was a teenager, but it's been many, many years, so it was basically like watching it for the first time again. Like I knew kind of the broad strokes, but I didn't really remember how it ended. I didn't really remember the major beat, so it felt like a first time watch for me. And it really worked for me, like as a road movie and and actually, and we'll get into this later, but I think it's much more interesting to me in kind of a metatextual way than it is as a movie on its own, uh, just because Whoa. of the two stars. Whoa. So we'll get Trying to that. To blow people's hair back here. Right. Jesus. Right. Okay. Uh, well, I'll, you know, I'll play the part that you normally play and just be incredibly mean and also put words in people's mouths, I guess. I am going to posit that the reason people <laughs> thought this was a lesser than The Hustler is because they're fucking old. If they've seen The Hustler and <laughs> this comes out in the uh, 80s. You were born in the 40s, so, you know. <laughs> you know, you probably don't like that uh, Fast Eddie here is old and at one point breaks down in tears uh, because he gets too drunk and gets hustled by a young uh, Forrest Whitaker. Too. Who's, yeah. uh, you know, a, a relatively nice hustler. Yeah. The, you know, since he's not going to get violent, but he just wants you to know. Hey, I pulled one over on you, but if there's going to be bad blood, just keep your money, whatever. Yeah. Uh, be a baby about it. I, you know, I, I, I like that. I like a criminal just calling you a crybaby, basically. <laughs> like, I'm not going to hurt you, but. Like, you want your, your money ego. back? It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would, because I don't know what is it about this particular version of, you know, hustling or this sort of like sportsmanship, this look at uh, what does Newman's character say? Like, you know, money won is like far better than money earned, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Like, 
what is it they don't like about it? Uh, was it Tom Cruise? Do you think? I mean, did they not just seem like comparing young Tom Cruise to young Paul Newman? Because young Tom Cruise here is actually not playing a very Tom Cruise part. I don't think he's not a very likable dude. And actually, that's what I was kind of getting at uh, with looking at it from a kind of film perspective, kind of outside of the movie is I think this is a true passing of the torch um, between not only these two characters, but between these two actors, Paul Newman clearly, you know, especially in the 50s, 60s, 70s was a full on movie star, like one of the biggest stars in the world. And this is right after Top Gun. This is right when Tom Cruise becomes the next big movie star. And I love that they are very different kinds of movie stars. Paul Newman is a quiet movie star. He does a lot of his best acting when he's not speaking. It's all facial expressions. It's all processing. And I think Tom Cruise, especially at this point in his career, is kind of the motormouth movie star. And that's also how their characters interact, is that one of them is very quiet and watches the room and reads the room, and the other one is pure instinct. So I kind of like seeing this not only in the movie, but outside of the movie with Paul Newman kind of handing the reins of movie stardom over to Tom Cruise. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, a crutch, right? Both uh, in character, maybe out of it, uh, where Cruise, you know, he needs to dance. Uh, he needs to be really boisterous. You know, he needs to, to sing. He needs to... Uh, <laughs> Got some martial arts he... stuff with the pool cue. I mean, it's... Well, I was going to go with him, uh, you know, rubbing his hand uh, through his, his hair, which... Normally it's fantastic. I don't know if this particular cut uh, has aged well. It's certainly mm. high and very thick. It's very that? like Johnny Bravo. Like <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> Which is funny because you know Top Gun, Tom Cruise. I think is iconic. Where it's like that. That's always going to be a great look. This, you know, you you have to like. Well, he's in a pool hall and he's wearing a shirt with his name on it. Like his <laughs> Vince. Oh, Vince. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I, I remember hearing that, uh, seeing an interview or something where George Clooney was kind of like taken aside when he was transitioning from like ER to movies. I can't remember which director was like, hey, you have some mannerisms that you kind of lean on as a crutch where it's like you don't like – I guess if you watch ER, you would see a lot of it. Like you don't make direct eye contact usually yeah. with like who you're talking to, which on ER, it's a lot of walk and talk. Uh, and he has like he had the notorious, I guess, at that time sort of head nod. Mm. Um, which we're just going to keep mentioning Kevin Smith in the series on Martin Scorsese because they're kind of one to one. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> listen to any of his commentary tracks as uh, we referenced with Dogma, talking about a different actor, but he kind of points it out in a you know an affectionate way with Jason Lee. That Jason Lee has the head nod to punctuate his line <laughs> delivery. I think you see a little bit of that with Cruz here, mm -hmm. as far as like when he's in the the pool hall sequences or even just sitting across the table from Newman, he always has to be like kind of doing something extra. Uh, but you know, it's you're, very you're talking childlike about getting... almost in this performance. Yeah. It gets, I mean, it becomes literal when you have like the characters, I can't remember which They're sequence jumping on the bed. <laughs> well, there's that. I was just like, you know, when he tries to like tell a joke when they're like trying to like, okay, let's get serious. And it's like both his girlfriend and his mentor that he's sort of adopted are like, Jesus Christ, will you just shut up? And it's, it's not like, unlike uh, Alice doesn't live here anymore with that kid. Like, oh, stop with the jokes. Shut up. Although <laughs> I did, and probably because it's Tom Cruise and not some anonymous like child actor, uh, I did feel for him in that moment because I'm like, he has a look on his face like, but I'm always like this. Right. And it's like, you know me. Like, how can you yell? How can you reprimand me? Like, yep. there's a sequence where Paul Newman 
uh, what does he call him? He basically says he's someone that has like no substance, and he's like guys spend their whole lives trying to be oh try to be an incredible flake mm. to get that persona down, and you have it naturally, and you <laughs> yes. see Cruz's face just drop. Wait, like wait a minute. <laughs> and this it's interesting. That relationship is so interesting to me because you know Paul Newman, Fast Eddie, it's all business, and so is Carmen, so is Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, uh, and Vincent is the That's only a one. Name. Jesus yeah. Christ! Yeah, I got that out without stuttering over it. I'm very oh proud my of myself. God. Did she really feel the need to use her middle name? Yeah, that too? like your There's name isn't long one? enough. Yeah, my God, exactly. Uh, and Tom Cruise, Vincent is like the last one to recognize that he's being used by everyone here. And there's a really sweet moment where he's trying, he's searching for a father figure, and he like hugs Paul Newman, where he's just like, "No one's ever set me straight like that." And there's this, I love that there's this very long pause before Eddie finally reaches up and hugs him back like okay like jesus what do i have to do to get through this day uh and you know it's an interesting they make an interesting choice that most of vincent's arc actually takes place off screen uh like you have a lot of him acting childish and doing stupid things and then when they separate after he essentially like throws money at him says you got your stake and go um then a lot of changes happen because he has to, because now he and Carmen are on their own and they have to survive on their own. And then when they reappear, he's he's changed. He's he's not as innocent as he was. He understands kind of the way things work now. So it's an interesting choice from Scorsese to have all that happen off screen. Yeah, I mean, because we shift, right? We shift to to Newman's. It's not that we change perspective, <laughs> but yeah, like he he's his perspective on life has changed. So we, we've, we're staying with the same character who, uh, you know, initially in their meeting, uh, the biggest, like, I guess, tell for him that, okay, this, this guy is like, I've got to like mold him. I've got to bring him in, uh, as when he offers to play John Turturro for free after yeah. taking him for money. And Newman's face is like, wait, what? Like you, you'll play for the fun of it. Like, what is this? <laughs> like just, to, uh, but eventually Newman, I don't know if he comes around to playing for the just the fun of it, the joy of it, but he comes around like he removes money from the equation. So the joy of pool. competition instead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, it doesn't I don't think you can have us cutting away to uh, Cruz um, kind of getting to where I guess Newman was trying to get him to. Right. Like because then that you don't have the sucker punch at the end. Uh it is. It's rough. I remember my first watch for this one. I was like, I don't know if I like this. I, like, and it's like not Cruz becoming more like Newman, but Newman getting back to where Cruz was, or like being sort of starry-eyed as far as like just trying to be like the best at something. And it's the, the whole time he's been keeping Cruz under his thumb. Like, oh, it doesn't matter if you're the best. It only matters how much money you can make. In fact, you don't want people to know you're the best. Like, for the love of God, whatever you do. Don't let people know how gifted you are at this game, which is the antithesis to pretty much any sports film that right. we see. So I think it it's keeping with Scorsese's look at this stuff, especially in, when we're talking about Raging Bull, where you're like, he is not a sports ball fan in the slightest. <laughs> so I, I think he would have to approach it almost from the Fast Eddie, fast Eddie perspective at the beginning, which mm -hmm. is like, what can I make out of this? What sort of life can I make out of this this gift? Not the gift itself. Yeah, it's uh, and also as I, I notice as I'm watching this, like I feel like the first half hour is very different from the rest. It's almost like I felt like as a director, you can almost feel Scorsese getting a little bit bored uh, that it's like just kind of a <laughs> standard movie. Like it's just like, OK, I'm going to introduce this this pool shit, I guess. And then there's a <laughs> sequence where 
Newman is watching Cruz play. And it's, you know, it's another great uh, facial performance from Paul Newman where you can see him processing and see him working through everything that's happening and judging and judging Vince on what's happening. And then the, the screen kind of splits and you, it's half Newman's face and half the, the billiards table. And it's like, okay, Scorsese got a little bored and now he's got to use some visual fun here. And it lasts for the basically the rest of the movie where, you know, you have all these kind of almost first person shots on the, on the pool table. And you're like, oh, okay, this definitely is becoming a Scorsese movie. I just don't think he's cut out to make simplistic films. And on its face, this is a pretty simple movie. It's good. It's a road movie, uh, but it, it's not really in Scorsese's wheelhouse. He still makes the best of it, I think, but I don't think this is what people think of when you think of Scorsese films. Yeah, I would argue like After Hours is far more simplistic. Um, kind of, I mean, based what you on you said that after the first half hour, how slight it is as far as it, it really is just like, well, what happens next? It's a page turner in that way, just like, and anything could happen. Like it's, <laughs> it's not an incredibly complicated plot. We'll just introduce another actor with sort of a broad character, and they'll put Griffin Dunn through his paces. Um, this is a uh, more typical movie experience where it's like, you know, with no basis of how it came to be a movie star is incredibly gifted at something. Like he's like the best we've ever seen. Like, you know, you see that a lot in sports movies, like just somehow that's the, the best, you know, home run hitter you'll ever run across. Uh, and he's just living next door, that sort of thing. Right. Um, I think that's where I would disagree with the criticisms of, you know, this being an unnecessary sequel is I, I actually like that there's some history to the character of Fast Eddie. Yes. Having gone through you know, something where, you know, to be uh, an up and coming sort of hot shot and having these established veterans uh, with, you know, historical references to like, you know, the best in their field. Um, this case, we take a fictional character, you know, a character we've seen on screen before. And we're going to make him the authority on this. But the way he chooses to use his authoritative voice is, I mean, kind of shameless and seedy. Like, do you ever get like a a good read? Like, do you think because it's Newman that we're clued into that there's like a pure joy in the, the hustle here? Because I, I never that's maybe one failing for me on the film is I don't ever feel that. Newman is going to take full advantage of these people. I think he's, I think he's legitimately tried to show them a life that they can make for themselves by hustling. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think if you're worried that he's going to take them for everything they have, I don't think the movie works Uh, Yeah, because then there's no, there's no coming back from that, for that character in the audience's eyes. You have to believe that there's goodness in him. And I think some of the ways they do that is introducing these characters who have known how great he is uh, and having the the romance angle uh, with him and the woman who works at the bar, um, that she sees something in him that's good. And I think you need that outside perspective. Otherwise, it's just like, why would you trust literally the hustler? Why would you, why would you trust this guy? There's literally no reason to get behind him. Um, and it makes me wonder if actually this... This movie works better if you haven't seen The Hustler. I don't know because I haven't seen it. But I think the movie instills enough history based on these other side characters that they come in contact with that you get a picture of that already. Like when they go to that one pool hall and the guy is like, do you know who this guy is? Like he tells the audience and tells uh, Vincent and Carmen like how important this character is and how much history is there. So I don't think you even need the film from 1961 
to inform you. I think it probably helps. I mean, you get more history, but I think the film on its own offers it already. So it's like it's a pseudo sequel. Like it's a sequel where you don't even really need to see the original. Mm -hmm. I mean, the original history is all kind of jacked up anyway, because (laughs) you had like so the Minnesota Fats character. Jackie Gleason, right? Yeah, but like the there was like a real pool player that uh, a hustler a shark that said he was inspiration. But then it's like the you know the snake eating itself, where it's like the author's like no, he wasn't. But he became so associated with it, but he became the real one. And it's like so he somehow became the real guy, even though he wasn't <laughs> based off a fictional character. That that sort of thing, and you know I think that Newman, you know that it, I don't know. I, I mean I like an actor revisiting. Uh, previous, you know, maybe not the high point because I think he would go as like Butch and Sundance as far as like maybe what he's known for. If someone's going to say, oh, what character did he play? It's that on... and Cool Hand Luke, right? I mean, those are probably yeah. the two. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's getting to touch on something that made him famous. And so it's like, yeah, as you were saying, it's like one former hotshot actor to the next generation. So if you want to look at it that way, which clearly you did because you side with Scorsese and you, you hate sports, apparently. <laughs> No, I don't think that's true. I also like um, I like the way the film wraps up. I like that it's, you know, there's not a solid answer to who's better in this movie. What are you movie. talking about? Newman's back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> He's back, but I love his speech. It's just kind of like, I'm going to beat you. And I'm going to beat you now. I'll beat you later. Like, it's just like, so he has that kind of scaffolding there. Even if Tom Cruise happens to win this match, then the next time I'm still going to keep coming back. And I kind of like that that lesson that he walks away from that he's like, just because things go wrong, doesn't mean I have to be a fucking crybaby and give up on life. I can come oh, back okay. and try again. I like that. Okay. So you're reading it that way. Cause I'm like, there is a dangerous darker version of that ending where it's like, you know, that's how force Whitaker took you for some money. Cause you kept saying like, hey, I didn't <laughs> Do get that this again. Time. I'll get you Do next. That again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's a true test uh, to Cruz, And I think he's already, he's already backslid. Because his ego has come back into it for Cruz for even walking in the door. You know, like if he truly was just out to get as much as he can with this gift of his. He wouldn't bother. He he would just first off, why would you even, uh, you know, give Newman a cut of a hustle that he wasn't an active participant in? He's just sort of a bystander. But he wanted to rub it in his face. Right. That's Mm, that's the ego of the apprentice becoming the master. But then when Newman's character turns it down and throws the money, literally throws the money back at him. Yeah. He has to come back in with it again instead of, so it's like, he's not truly crossed totally over to the, the dark side there. Cause otherwise you would just be like, cool, eight grand, eight grand more in my pocket. Perfect. I mean, that's what I would do. I don't know about you, Dave. Yeah. You know, eight grand could make quite a difference in my life right about now. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not giving anybody a cut. I also found out that Tom Cruise, except for one exception, uh, did all of his own shots in this movie. Of course. Um, yeah. So he didn't do the he didn't do the the jump shot. I guess uh, Scorsese said he felt like Cruz could have done it with enough practice, but they just didn't have enough time. So like they brought in some professional. To, Probably why to Cruz has never worked with him again. Sorry, you wouldn't let me do my own stunts, <laughs> <laughs> and now he's jumping out of airplanes like repeatedly. This is this is where it started. But yeah, I you know after I watched this movie, I I wanted to look up okay where was this in Tom Cruise's career? I made the assumption that this would be like right before Top Gun. Uh, Because he's so, I think I have this picture in my head of like, okay, he's much more immature in this movie and then much more assured in Top Gun. So it felt like, oh, that would be like a nice transition. But so I was shocked to see that it was the other way around, that Top Gun actually came out 
right before this because I think I think Cruz is good here, but this is definitely Newman's movie. I think he steals pretty much every. I mean, it's weird to say steals when he's like the main character, but he dominates every scene that he's in. Um, and I think some of that is purposeful. That's why you have Tom Cruise essentially playing a child in a man's body, like for this entire movie. I find it interesting that there's no, there's very little sexual intimacy between Vincent and Carmen. Um, it's very much, I mean, for her, it's very much a business relationship. Like she knows exactly what she's doing, but it does feel a little bit like taking advantage of an infant. Like it's very much a child through pretty much the entirety of the movie until he makes his reappearance and he's, you know, more mature, I guess. It's fine, though, because it's Tom Cruise. You can take advantage of Tom Cruise. Okay. <laughs> I just assume, you know, things are going to turn out all right for him. He's had enough uh, winning in his life. And in this case, he's playing a man that you're arguing is being taken advantage of. It just so happens to be great at pool. And he gets to play on arcade machines. He's such and, an idiot, you know, though. That that sequence with Mary Elizabeth, Master Antonio, and Paul Newman in the car where she tells him, like, you know, he is, she essentially robbed his mother and he still has no idea like she has this the necklace like oh my mom has one just like that that's weird Mm -hmm. like what a fucking idiot like jesus that is the moment in the movie where like i was like i might turn on this character because i don't like that's really dumb like that is that's another level um but i like the fact that you know originally carmen is you could tell like trying to kind of flirt with eddie and see how far that can get her um, it's very direct flirting, I guess, just like hanging out topless. Dave is but... here for some nudity on screen. <laughs> That's right. Me and Marty, we're, <laughs> we're here for it. <laughs> um, but I like the fact that the movie chooses Paul Newman to just be like, basically stop doing that. Like, this is not going to happen. This is a business arrangement. You should know better than this. And I like the fact that, you know, I wish, kind of wish Tom Cruise had learned this lesson, that you don't have to have a, you know, 20-year-old as your romantic interest in a movie when you're in your 50s and 60s not necessary so i like that the the film makes that choice instead of having some big blow up where you know those two hook up and vincent gets really pissed off and blah 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 i mean you're you're giving him his <laughs> cruise i'm assuming his kudos for how old was uh let's see she was 28 27 when this was filmed and what is she, some, in your eyes, Dave, some old hen at this point for Tom Cruise? <laughs> no, what I'm saying is if these roles were, if, if Tom Cruise right now was playing the Paul Newman role, he would be hooking up with the 25-year-old. Almost guaranteed. Because that's what he does in all of his movies. And I like that the movie doesn't go that route. And they have Paul Newman with someone his own age. Imagine that. Mm, I can't go with you there because there's the less sex. There's no fucking in this movie, so. It's true. There isn't. Even it, if the, the age disparity would be a little bit troublesome, give me that. Give me one, you know, sex scene with this. Although I agree with you, it is kind of interesting that uh with the, the couple being taken on the ro- road by this older man, that even though she's in a state of undress and you would think that Cruz is like just a complete horn dog at this point in his life, like just kind of a a buffoonish jock, that's not even a part of the equation. Not even. Well, it's not a part of the equation on screen, but there is a sequence where he is acting up and winning too many, uh, too many games, and she tells him, "If you win another game, you'll be humping your fist for the next week." So clearly, they are having sex because that is seen as a punishment to him. But you never, you never see that on screen, which I know for you is the biggest sin in all of movie making. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's why Scorsese has a pass for Hoven. I don't know. There's a lot more sex in Verhoeven, but he only got 10 films on a podcast direct by as opposed to 20. <laughs> that is right. Um, so this movie actually, I was surprised, like, because this feels like a very, like, very much a crowd pleasing movie. I was surprised that it got a bunch of nominations for, for awards. Do you feel like this holds up in that way? Does this seem like an award worthy movie in Scorsese's filmography? Well, not just nominations. Paul Newman wins for this. Yep. This is his best actor. But doesn't that feel uh, like a, one of those makeup Oscars? Like, uh, we haven't, we hasn't won. So, uh, let's, uh, let's give him this. Like, we don't know how many more movies he's going to be in. And this was pretty good. <laughs> like, um, yes. I mean, it does. I don't know, uh, who the other contenders were for that, uh, particular, particular year. Um, okay, here we are. Uh, Dexter Gordon for something called Round Midnight. Bob Hoskins for Mona Lisa. Okay, I like Bob Hoskins. I haven't seen that movie, though. William Hurt for Children of a Lesser God. That sounds like an Oscar movie. <laughs> and James Woods for Salvador. Yeah, that's a good movie, but yeah, kind of glad that Paul Newman won. I'm okay with that. Okay, you retract your statement. I do, I do. And, for Paul Newman. And Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio also nominated, uh, as well as the uh, the screenplay. Um, and art direction like there was a lot of uh, nominations for this movie it surprised me like after I watched the movie I enjoyed the movie but it doesn't and maybe times have just changed since the 80s like it doesn't I feel like there's much more of an awards hungry mentality hey look now. this is the wrong director to talk about that because when we get to the departed that's the one that finally brings it home for Marty so mm. just an off year just like entertaining like that was yeah. pleasant like I just enjoy it you know there's a respect for Paul Newman yep uh, you know, this is the, um, unfortunately like the, well, I don't, I wasn't gonna call it a two hander, but I guess it's actually, you know, three hander with these, this triplet that we have on the road together, but clearly it was advertised as Newman, big, bold block letters. Oh yeah. Cruise. Um, I mean, you can even yeah. see it in the poster. Like if you look at the poster, yeah. it's like the top half is a gi- giant Paul Newman's head. And then the bottom half is Mary lives with Master Antonio and Tom Cruise kind of. This is, yeah, I mean, this is the stuff that I miss. You know, this is just mm-hmm. old fashioned sort of uh, Hollywood uh, studio fair in that regard. And, uh, you know, thankfully, I guess it was enough to get uh, Scorsese finally uh, greenlit his passion project. I, actually, I think the second time that it was greenlit. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't I don't know, Dave. Um, yeah, it's not Oscar fair, but I kind of wish this stuff was. I wish no, this I, was I agree. Considered I'm, Oscar Beatty. Yeah, it surprised me, but it kind of like in a happy way. Like I was like, oh, this this got nominated for awards. That's great. I wish movies like this one. I wish movies like this were getting made. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and two, I wish movies like this got a little bit more respect because it's not. It feels trite to be like, oh, well, it's just a road movie, blah, blah, blah. But road movies are not easy to make in an entertaining way. A lot of them are really bad. But this is really well performed, really well written, you know, really well directed. It's good. Green Book finally brought it home for the color of money. How did I fucking know you were going to bring that shit up? (laughs) I had to mention road movie one too many times. And there it was. You know what? I, I let far too many uh, pitches to hit you go past me. So for that last time, had to had to smack it around, Dave. Finally happened. All right, so we're going to take a break and then come back uh, with another road movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. <laughs> So what about you? What's your take on The Last Temptation of Christ? Does 
this work or is it simply a passion project just for Marty? Like he's the only one who should watch it. No, I, I think it, it's a passion project that he shared very well. Um, it is a biblical based story and it's almost three hours long. <laughs> this is one I think you should be very well into his filmography before diving into oh you don't um, want to start with this this is the introduction <laughs> yeah and again this really shows his bravery like this nice catholic boy making this film i mean funny i was raised in a very religious house um and i'm not religious anymore so i i actually first saw this film when i was kind of in that transition mm. and it was actually incredibly helpful for me because Jesus is a human being in this film and you know Judas is a human being in this film he's not like some cloaked villain it might be his most most emotionally wide open honest film which is really interesting when you look at the topic of it mm-hmm. um but he it really is just an enormous accomplishment. Like if this was the only film he ever made in his career, people would still be talking about it. All right, so we're back finally to talk about Martin Scorsese's passion project, The Last Temptation of Christ. I think we have mentioned this on every single episode (laughs) so far. So now we are finally here. Uh, this is a movie now I've seen twice. Once for my old podcast when I had your your buddy Derek on to talk about the Last Temptation. Yeah, of I was gonna I was gonna use that for reference, but I don't think you'll find it. Gone right. forever. Nope. Which is good because I don't remember what I said about it then. So now there'll be no proof that I am uh, I'm crossing myself up. So Mike, this Let me on... ask you something. Okay, go ahead. Oh, before we get into this, you know, okay. this whatever bullshit Scorsese's got up his sleeve this time. Uh, as a podcaster, are you more concerned when you double dip that you're going to repeat yourself or that you're going to be so disagreeable mm. <laughs> that if you know, someone listened to both, they wouldn't know which is your honest assessment? Um, I think, I mean, they both, they're both bad, right? But I am more concerned with repeating myself because yep, I, I if I were listening to a bunch of podcasts, I would not want to hear the same thing twice. So, Mike, on its face, this does not, at least to me seem like a movie that you would love uh why is that dave uh it's very long uh (laughs) religious text uh passion project all these things usually add up to things mike's like oh god someone just chop this movie up even more and make it two hours and i think there's there might be so i don't know if that's what you think but there might be some truth to that it does feel like he is pressured to hit uh all the jesus greatest hits moments here where it's like, you got to have Lazarus, you got to have the loaves and fishes, you know, you got to have all these moments that everyone knows, you know, from religious upbringing. Um, so I think there are moments where it does feel like, oh, God, I got to hit all these marks before I get to the part I'm really interested in, which is the actual temptation at the end of the movie, which is an interesting way to do it. Like you have essentially recreate a lot of moments from the Bible. And then the last 45 minutes of this movie are like uh, things that people would call heretical like to the point that people were lighting the movie on fire and injuring people uh, in some circumstances. So he's really taking some risks here. So what was your final, finally your viewing of this movie? Like I've been waiting for you to watch this forever. (laughs) Well, uh, I had seen this before, Um, but like you, 
this may be my third time I watching it. I don't know. I, I watched it twice. You know, if I did watch it twice, I don't remember. Uh, but they would have had been so close together in my youth. Because um, I think I'm pretty sure, like, I wanted to like argue with people about this, or I wanted to, and I was just way too late, late to the game on this. <laughs> because there's a, uh, and I don't. Oh, I do have it in front of me because I started looking around this dark room, and I'm like, well, you know, normally, and I skipped it for Verhoven because I actually looked. This is Mike's book club for your show. Okay. And for Verhoeven on Amazon, I was like, okay, what's been written about the guy? There were like two books and both had like negative reviews. And they were just like, here are the movies he made. (laughs) Like he liked doing this one. So couldn't do that for Verhoeven. Sorry about that. Um, I have one that, okay, it is the uh, from the University Press of Kentucky. I think it was very nice. Um, and I wondered why I had access to it for my local library. Cause when I looked it up, it's like 40 bucks, like out of print. And the Kindle version is actually $57, Jesus. which is higher than the, if you want an out of print, like hardcover, uh, it's from, uh, Thomas R. Lindloff and it's called Hollywood under siege, Martin Scorsese, the religious right and the culture wars. Ooh. And as the cover is people protesting, uh, this film, um, which is funny because I, it's believable that it happened, but it's like, you know, a great example. I mean, example. people protested dogma, so like, you know, it's... Yeah, it's a great example of protests, you know, or that rabid sort of response not lasting because it's like they're protesting it much like probably people on Twitter now when it's in the conversation. But this thing has been, you know, in the Criterion Collection from the DVD days, maybe even the Laserdisc days. I don't I know. So. Um, and they, you know, it's not like the religious right is constantly like, well, they wouldn't say this, but God damn it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I wish they would. <laughs> I do, too. Um, you know, they have plenty of other hypocrisies that they get over. Uh, at least they could curse the way I want them to curse. Uh, but, you know, they don't they don't maintain that passion for it. Uh, like dogma dogma. Now you could, you know, where I guess you could buy like in a Walmart or something, but when it was released, it was heretical. So when you bring that up to me, yeah, I, my point of reference is someone that did not grow up in the church. Uh, even though I grew up, you know, in the South or South ish in a small town where church, <laughs> I remember asking like, cause I, I remember going to church when I was younger because that's kind of where you drop off kids, go play basketball or something. And I remember asking legitimately before I was a smart ass, or I probably was a smart ass, but not about this because I didn't have the knowledge or experience yet. Asking my mother, why would adults go to church? Because I thought it was just something just for kids, just because that Sunday was my school. only experience. Yep. Yeah. Or just like, you know, youth baseball or something like that. And I remember my mom telling me, uh, it's only for adults who don't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> like, I couldn't love your mother anymore. That is and that perfect stuck with me more than any sort of gospel I was exposed to. So take that for what you will, right? I'm more game for like a version of Christ as a man or having the temptations or the failings, the confusion of a man. And to me, that sounds far more palatable and interesting than, you know, something Mel Gibson's doing, which is his like snuff film version of that. Yeah. Um, so you're right in a way that the biggest sin for me in this film, when I hear the this, biggest is not, sin. Nice, nice. Well, you you said something. I can't remember <laughs> what on a previous film. Where it, peek behind the curtain. We are doing 
all these months, <laughs> this month's episodes, every one of them, we're doing in one marathon recording. So I've forgotten where you, you know, yeah. did a little pun, but you did it and I hate you for it and I hate myself. This is That's payback. Funny. Okay, fair uh, enough. It's not the fact that it's based on Jesus. It is when you say passion project. Mm. That is that that to me is the like, eh, because it just does sound like the movie that probably shouldn't get made, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> like because you assume like all of them. Like I've liked a lot of your work, especially Scorsese. I'm assuming you were passionate about all of them. I'm assu- I would know, hope I so. Yeah, I don't think he was doing the Gus Van Sant, you know, from Jane Silent Bob, where he's counting his money, even though that's a funny story. Yeah. Um. And that leaves room for, you know, a misguided attempt at something. Or it sounds like it's not as collaborative as what I'd like it to be. Where mm-hmm. There's not other voices in the room. Yeah, no one checking you at that point. Like, maybe you um, shouldn't do that part. That being said, you know, it's um, it's a pretty perfect film for me. Uh, it's It's got all the, the stuff that I dig as far as, like, a, a lead character who is passionate about going someplace, but not really knowing where or how to get there. And I, I like that because mm-hmm. I can identify with that. I can't, you know, the, the cruise character in color of money, just being like, I'm just great at pool. And it's like, well, okay. Yeah. Like there's clear disconnect. Can't relate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but somehow on this episode, I can relate to Christ, but I can't relate to Tom Cruise pool player. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. probably blasphemy to people, I guess, of, uh, certain people of the faith mm-hmm. <laughs> when I think that Tom Cruise and the color of money is more Christ-like than, than Christ here in this film. That's really the only reason it works for me. If Christ was like, I'm God, I'm the son of God. I just am. Follow just me. Like Cruise. And yep. he's, well, if he was wearing a shirt that said Jesus on it, maybe then I would roll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I from faith based background of me. So I'm interested in your your take on it. Yeah, it's a movie I'm very glad I watched later in life. Um, if I was still in the church, I would probably hate this um, because what even if they're in California, even I mean, you, you know, I was I was a weird kid. This probably will not surprise you. But um, I had to be like when I was it became an issue when I started going to school and learning evolution. Uh, because I had been raised in the church and it had all been like, well, Adam and Eve, that's how the world started. And I had to have like very long discussions with my mother specifically about like, but that doesn't make sense. The Bible says this and, you know, I'm raised to think that the Bible is true. So how how does how does this work? And, you know, my mom told me, well, that is just a story to teach a lesson. And it like that like blew my mind. I was like, I couldn't because I was a kid. I couldn't like you see things in very black and white terms. Um, so it took me a long time to kind of adjust to that and be like, you know, make your brain adapt to a world that like maybe not everything in the holy book is true. So that would have been really tough for me to view even as even as a teenager, because that's where I started to really struggle with faith was probably like 13, 14, 15 years old and kind of figuring out like, oh, I kind of think this is all bullshit. Like, how do I how do I process this now as I'm as I'm growing into an adult, like what do I actually believe? Um, so that would have been a really challenging movie for me to see. Um, so I'm glad I watched it later in life. And I think it is the most interesting story of Jesus that has been put to film or that will ever be put to film. Um, hmm. Dogma didn't do it for you, huh? <laughs> it's not a lot of Jesus stuff in dogma, really. I mean, it's... well, you, I mean, you've got the great bit in there. We're talking about, you know, the responsibility of how do you tell a child, like, right. here's what's going to happen to you. That's a great scene it in, is. in that one. So, yeah. And I think, 
you know, I, and granted, I've never read the book that this is based on, so I don't know how close it is. But there's a lot of risk taken here. Like, essentially, the very beginning of the movie, you know, you have Judas showing up, you know, essentially calling him a, you know, a Roman sympathizer. Like, he is building crosses that apparently no one else could build a cross in, in Israel. And he is basically allowing Jews to be put to death in this horrific way. So he is in many ways a traitor to his people. And I like the fact that later in the movie, you very quickly find out he is doing this because he wa- basically wants God to shut up. Like, stop talking to my ear. Stop driving me crazy. I want. I don't want your love. I want you to hate me so it's finally quiet and I can live my life. And his struggle of like, is this God or is this the devil? And, you know, if it's God, you can't cast him out. And then I'm essentially cursed to walk around like this for the rest of my life. Because for him, he views it as totally negative. And that's something that church teachings never really go into is how much of a struggle that must have been for Jesus as a young man. Because it kind of starts out like, oh, well, he just goes and starts preaching in the church you know, to the Pharisees when he's a precocious child. And there's no real struggle. And this is the first time I've really seen Jesus shown as a human being. Because he's supposed to be human and divine. But this is the first time. We see the human side of him. We see the doubt. Uh, We see the struggle. We see him not want to hear the word of God and not want to die. And just like, I remember that being very shocking to me when I was a kid, you know, learning the Bible stories, like, because the first time you hear any sense of doubt is when he's on the cross. Like you don't get any of the doubt before that. And then you get the, why have you forsaken me? Which you get in this film version as well. And I remember it being shocking to me, like, wait, but why is he like you? You just think like, oh, he's ready for this his whole life. This is what he's been meant to do. And in this version, you see that like there's doubt throughout and you get that through uh, Defoe's portrayal, which I think is utterly fantastic. And like we talked earlier about like the fact that De Niro is supposed to be cast in this role. And I feel like he's way too aggressive uh, to, to play that role. Whereas Defoe has a gentleness and he has a fearfulness in this portrayal that is really humanizing. The only the only casting in this movie I'm not a fan of is Harvey Keitel as Judas. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I didn't... I really I, I really liked him. Here, I like his curly red hair. <laughs> <laughs> Mike finally <laughs> loves a ginger. It finally <laughs> it's just too aggressive for me. Um... I mean, he's Judas, like, right? I mean, can't he? Is if you're gonna be any of them, any of the followers? I just think Harvey Keitel is just a little too tough guy in this role. He still feels like he's in a monster role. Is it just too modern feeling to have? Maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe that's it. It just rubbed me the wrong way. Like, it's not a terrible performance. It's the one that stands out to me as like this doesn't. This feels like this doesn't quite fit for me. Uh, But this is the first time I feel like you see Scorsese getting really truly experimental. Like when you have the temptation in the desert with the pillar of fire and the giant lion that shows up out of nowhere, and it's there's oh, a oh lot. you're skipping the snake, saying look at my look at my boobs. Yep, Come that's on. true. And I'm th- huh? That's a but lot like, going one on. I, one of the many reasons I could never you know be the son of God, where I'm like, huh? What? What? Are you, snake? What are you talking about? I'll see. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. Stop that. <laughs> Stop coming on to me. Um, okay, so, uh, if we're going down the list of actors, I really liked uh, Barbara Hershey. Oh, she's here, great. Who, uh, apparently, is the one that put this book in Scorsese's hands yep. way back in the boxcar, boxcar Bertha. Day. So, yep. 
yeah, uh, probably not enough said about her. I guess this being a passion project for her as well, or you mm-hmm. know something like, hey, you should look into this. You know, you're a great young filmmaker coming up, and boy, putting a lot of pressure on little Marty Scorsese. Like <laughs> in his first <laughs> movie, done. here you go, <laughs> take this giant tome of Jesus's life. Like, good luck. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, because not having sort of too much reference point for uh, the life of christ because as i said i use the church for people to play sports with or something or to to hang out for an afternoon and then you know get rid of it um I, I liked her version of mary magdalene who uh you know it's kind of similar to color of money in that sense the women seem to be the you know smartest guys in the room you know or mm-hmm. in this case the literal experience with uh what humans are capable of or she is a prostitute um she manages to be like sort of condescending and both incredibly warm to mm-hmm. this version of Jesus, which is a really strange it's way a tough to play balance, it. very hard. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I don't I don't have a problem with any of them. I think what I'd forgotten about, like you talked about like experimental um I think probably for practical reasons it worked out for me that the film was like incredibly sparse because apparently they were like shooting this very fast. And they pretty much just had to, like, you know. <laughs> I think they shot it, like, in Morocco on, on location. This is, like, the first time he's, like, left It was, like, home. I think just just under two months or something. And uh, apparently, the, so the original Jesus was going to be Aiden Quinn. Yep. But I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't really see the. I think it's a better choice side. than De Niro. But, like, it's, uh, I still think it ended up in its best possible hands. Where do you stand with uh, Sting or David Bowie? I don't think it matters. I mean, I honestly, like, I don't. I mean, I think they're they're both in that role, in that small of a role. They're both apologies re- to all the Bowie fans out there. Like, no difference. The police, David <laughs> Bowie, <laughs> those two actors. Not speaking about their music, um, in this small role, are relatively interchangeable. I like Bowie here. I actually wish he had a couple more scenes. I think he's really good, but I think Sting would be just as good. It'd be fine. I, I mean, I want you to just make sure to drop a a sick. <laughs> the police riff or something. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stand so close to me. <laughs> Do you think that can people have like a genuine movie conversation about this one? Even from like distance from the outrage, which I talked about, like, you know, there's a book about it that's very hard to get or very expensive, the Kindle version that I'm looking forward to, like, you know, reading. Um, because as I said, we're recording these all in one night. So no, I don't even have, I just checked this out from the library today. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this will be fun. Um, I'm wondering with stuff like this, like Martin Scorsese does The Life of Christ. Can anyone who's doing a movie podcast have a genuine conversation about it as a film? Or do you come hat in hand and you're like, even if you don't like it, do people talk around it where they're like, well, you know, I can see what Scorsese is going for here. And, you know, it's really impressive. What, you know, it's like these really guarded conversations talking mm. about it as a movie. Yeah. I mean, I think that that definitely occurs. It feels like it feels like there's kind of two options that get picked up here. It's either the like, fuck this movie. He's a heretic. Or it's like, <laughs> well, I'm not really sure how to talk about the. You know, it's like very dodgy. Um, and I remember the first time I watched it, like even though the movie is called the last temptation of Christ, I was still surprised by the end of this movie because I think because I bring in all this knowledge of the life of Jesus with me. So I and think Marty's so, throwing his hands up like, 
Son of a bitch, I titled it that. Like, <laughs> I let you know. So I feel like be a temptation. Well, I feel like well, there is there are temptations in this movie. So I think that's where it like throws people off who who know. I love your version of these <laughs> religious nut jobs sitting there. Like, all right, that better be the last. <laughs> no, no I'm not talking about that them. One. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about my viewing of it. Seventeen temptations. <laughs> that's it. Not well, there. One. There is like in the Bible a very well known story where he goes off into the desert and he's tempted by Satan. So I figured, oh, that's the temptation that this movie is going to be about. And then you're like, okay, and you get to the, you know, you get to the actual crucifixion, and then all of a sudden, you know, a supposed angel comes and kind of guides him. And then very quickly, I think I don't know how you reacted to this, but very quickly I kind of realized that this is. This is a temptation here. This is this is what's going on here. I didn't realize it was Satan, and I don't know how I feel about that. Um, well, I like that he says I'm an angel because in the books, Lucifer is an angel. He's a fallen angel, so that he's technically telling him the truth in that moment. Was he always the sexiest angel? Yeah, is that why? Like, well, he was su- supposedly the most beautiful angel in the heavens. So sexy. Yep. That's what they're saying. Yep, sexy little angel. That is. <laughs> <laughs> You can, you can clearly see I'm coming at this with no, no history of uh, church going. So you, the, so you didn't church. think it was the devil, but were you aware at that moment that this is like, this is not any kind of reality, that this is an actual temptation of... No, I didn't hmm. read that at all. I thought it was just him. I thought it was just him. Oh, like, his internal... Oh, okay. Could be, you know, like the direction I could have gone. I, I didn't think it was like a... You know, a literal thing like, oh, he's he is now mm. somehow magically he's off the cross. Well, I, I figured this is where happen. you'd like the movie because Jesus finally fucks like he finally he finally gets late. So, yeah. And I think, um, you know, one thing I'd forgotten about it was it's not it's not like the one and only true, perfect, uh, idyllic version of the way things could have gone if he didn't have the trappings of being the son of God and pretty much holding the fate, I guess, of humanity in his hands. Uh, Cause Mary Magdalene dies. It's taken from him. Even in this, like, but then the devil, devil tells him basically like, yeah, there's just one woman, just different faces. It's fine. I was trying to remember where I'd heard one woman with many faces. Cause I felt like I'd heard that said in jest in a movie I've seen many times. I had the same reaction as I was watching. I'm like, where have I heard this before? And I couldn't place it. I, you know, I'm willing to bet that it's the greatest auteur of all time, Kevin Smith, because I feel like it was a Jason Lee character oh, or something of that. That does sound nature. right, actually. Chasing Amy, Mamie. Uh, I don't know. Like Ben Affleck does Holden, you know, is he like being scolded with this thing? Which if that's the case, then, you know, maybe Smith is doing a direct reference to Last Temptation. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he was. Kevin Smith still hasn't made <laughs> Dave's list. But when he does, he will get one more, one more film in the month than John Ford. I will show you that. <laughs> He'll give you There's eleven, 11. sir. <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. So that was, that was a little, certainly a little strange for this supposed angel, and or in my version of it, where it's Jesus in his own head, sort of justifying, you know, what could have been this <laughs> one woman with many faces thing. Um, but no, I didn't, I, I don't, I say it's near perfect film for me. And that's, it may be the handling of Satan that gets a little too close to religion for my liking. 
where it's we, we have this alternate entity to blame for things. And I mean, the movie spends a lot of time, to be fair, blaming God. And I'm all for that. <laughs> like, I'm, all, I'm, I'm there with you. But having this, you know, the villain, like in an M. Night Shyamalan twist, where it was like, it was me for the last 45 minutes. Like, um, I, I like it better when it's inter- internal, like monologue. Like, I like his conversations with God when God's not talking to him, when he's talking to himself. Because I feel like that's... That's true to life. That's true to, you know, people who are going through any sort of particular struggle. Definitely not on this sort of landscape. I also I like the discussions that. he has where everyone wants to hear the voice of God. And he's like, no, you don't. Like, it's actually awful. Like, I like that because there are people who are zealots. There are people who are true believers that like they would, I mean, they would literally kill or die to hear the voice of God. And here is, here is this guy, Jesus, who is hearing the voice of God every day. And it's like, will you please stop talking? It's driving me crazy. Like, he doesn't know if he's losing his mind or if this is real. And everyone around him is like, oh, my God, do you know how lucky you are? I like that that dichotomy going on in the movie. I lot. think that's why I like the Kaitel Judas character. I like this sort of blunt force approach to things. Like, <laughs> I'll know God well, when I see it. <laughs> one step out of line, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I, I think that's that's probably a more strangely reasonable way to approach faith. Like this sort of all in mentality where it's like you because you, you could just talk yourself into circles. And, you know, I don't know about your experience, but in mine, like with the people who have been exposed to the church or have been really strong in their faith, like hardcore about that being like a part of their persona are usually ones that like when I run into them years later have kind of like have gone so far from it that it's like they are. Because you can't keep up angry. that intensity. Like, it's yeah. just, it's too much. And I feel like even though Judas is intense as a physical presence, I don't think spiritually he is nearly as intense as any of the the other people who are just sort of racking themselves with guilt over what they could or should do, like in the name of their faith. And I think that's because like he's having a very important argument with Jesus throughout this entire movie. It's like, what do you change first? Do you change our spirit or do you change like what's going on here and now? And his way of looking at it is like, you can't, you can't fix the spirit until you fix the situation we're in as Jewish people. It's like we are being picked off one by one. We are being murdered. We have to fix that. And then we can worry about the spiritual side. Whereas Jesus looks at it and it's like, no, the spirit, the soul is the base of everything. And if we fix that with love, we can fix everything else after that. So I think it's a really interesting discussion for people of faith. Is like, are you more interested in the soul or are you more interested in the body? And what becomes more important? So I like that that conversation. And I don't feel like they necessarily come to an agreement. It's like left up in the air by the end of the movie. No, Judas is one that throws back in this version of Jesus. <laughs> throws it back in his face. Is like, you preach love one day, then you come out of a hut with an axe saying, I'm here to bring fire. I'm going to baptize with fire. I mean, it's a you know kind of clever and... Uh, maybe more artistically satisfying version of events where you get these conflicting, you know, ways of dealing with a problem with the, where it's like everyone is your brother uh, or you get like the, the fire and brimstone and, and the also smite, it, the sets, it sets up this idea of like, you know, yes, he is divine, but he's also human. And he doesn't want to die. And if he is going to die, let me go down fighting instead of being strapped to a piece of wood and have nails through my hands and feet. Like it makes perfect sense that he would rather, die in in a in a fury then like give himself and surrender to this pain i read it differently i read it that he's a guy that 
this version of Jesus does not really relish the performance art aspect of his faith. And so, yes, being sacrificed, crucified, uh, you know, to the enjoyment of some uh, and, the, you know, the pain and despair of those close to him is not something he's going to look forward to. Uh, much like, you know, I, I really like this uh, strange friendship they have where, you know, you mentioned this argument between him and Judas uh, trying to sort of each of each of them is trying to, like, bring the other one closer to their their sort of vision of like how to handle like their time on earth together. Like, and you oftentimes see Jesus asking people to like, stay close to him, like stay physically close to him. And it's like trying to keep him tethered to being like a man. Like when he feels like he's, I I, I really like that aspect because it, you know, he doesn't give a big speech about it, but it's just like this really sort of like human response of just like like can you can my friend just stay close to me in this time because i what i'm going through i can't explain to you but just like be by my side just i don't know i just i'm just shocked with you dave that you just like hate harvey Keitel so much in this this one because i just I, I think judas is a good egg good guy to have around yeah i mean i think what you're bringing up this idea of keeping him tethered to the earth literally um i think is probably the thing i love most about the movie and probably the thing that you know hardcore religious people hate the most about it is there is a certain aspect in faith of like well jesus is the pinnacle right he's divine he's perfect he's who we look up to so having to see him have doubt is terrifying if that is your belief right this person who's divine he doesn't know what's going on either and he's scared what does that say about me i must i have to be terrified now and as someone who was religious and left the church that's endearing to me that actually makes him that it makes him more human and someone I can relate to more. Because if you put yourself in that position, it is terrifying. It should be, you know, but like, so I like that, that split there. And, but I can see how people who were, you know, true of the faith would find this hard to deal with. Cut this out. If, uh, okay. <laughs> if this goes I can't too far wait. <laughs> well, cause I, I like having little sort of mini arcs and podcast episodes. So this is the Kevin Smith happy hour, what we're having here. Um, <laughs> that just reminded me of on a different scale for all of you, spiritual folk. Uh, and if you're a super Kevin Smith fanboy, I guess I'm not trying to offend you either. Although you'll probably revel in this. There's a story he told, I think it's one of his, like an evening with Kevin Smith's where he was sort of being questioned, like how he, um, positioned, uh, queer relationships in his films. Um, which that's, I think that's something that I've always admired about Kevin Smith is he's sort of like, grown with the shift in that community, like saying, well, you know, I made that, you know, this was my perspective then, you know, in the nineties. And it's strange. Cause you look at something like chasing Amy, that was like incredibly progressive for its time. And now it's sort of being like tackled for not being progressive, you know? Um, so <laughs> he was talking about how he hoped that he could shift his sort of like dude, bro, like video game playing, like hockey loving, beer swilling culture of fans just a little bit. He's saying just move them a little bit closer. It's being a little bit more open-minded. So <laughs> he remembered a guy, like I guess at like a test screening, uh, not liking what they did with the Jason Lee character from chasing Amy uh, saying like, you know, <laughs> I'm a, you know, I love comic books. Like I love hockey. I love playing like video games with my boys and like, I'm just like totally digging this. Uh, was it Banky? Banky was the character's name, right? 
like I see like that's me. That's me. You've made me on screen. And uh, he made a joke like and also would never like uh, like kiss Shan Doherty. Like, I would, you know, this going back to the mall rats where it's like, you know, I would I would there's no way I'd fuck Shan Doherty. Uh, so totally like a bro type thing. And he's like, but you, you lost me. He's like, you know, so you're going to have like him agree to like, like have sex with his roommate, his best friend, Ben Affleck. Like, even though there's like a threesome, like, it's like, I don't know, man. Like, it's starting to make me think like, you know, this guy that I see myself in is, is he gay? Like, and I, I don't know how to feel about that. Like, what does that say about me? <laughs> I guess Kevin Smith couldn't help himself is in the back of the theater during this. Like, you know, they have hired a company, marketing company to, deal with these questions for the, their test screening and kevin smith goes it means you're fucking gay <laughs> <laughs> like, and so when i hear this to bring it back to scorsese this is the part where if you're not hearing this dear listeners dave has cut out this long kevin smith story. <laughs> you can just put the clip in there that would work um people like seeing something saying no no no, no that's not that's not how it is or how it can be because what does that say about me like I kind of immediately dismiss I like I like anything you just said means nothing to me now, because if you're saying that you're being forced to confront an aspect of yourself made by other people who don't know you and are making a fictional story and yet you still feel so personally attacked or moved by it in some way that it makes you uncomfortable. That's like that's your own business. That's like that. That's actually probably never like a flaw in the film. But you're now you're asking the filmmaker who doesn't know you, or you're asking me, like who saw this film with completely different life experiences, to tell you how you should feel, like when you you know you feel yourself being made uncomfortable by something. Like, and it's not like he we're just watching to bring up Mel Gibson again. It's like I just don't like seeing that much excessive violence on screen. We're not even seeing that, right? I could understand that if people are like, I don't want to see the story of Jesus being crucified because I can't handle the violence. I don't want to watch that. a snuff film, sure. Yeah. But if you're just saying like this guy had doubt and I have doubts. So if he has doubts too, then that's going to shatter like my perception of my world from this fictional film. I mean, that's art should, should do that. Like, and even if you don't like the, you can still dislike the movie, but it's like, you shouldn't dislike it for that reason. You shouldn't dislike it because it makes you question something about your, your own faith. Because if a movie, if fucking Dogma, because Dogma was right there on the same shelf as Last Temptation, totally different styles of movie, and dare I say it, totally different styles of comedy between these two films. I think that's fair to say. Like, but if they're on the same shelf for you, then you're you're not really engaging with either one of them. If you think, oh, that's the same, it's more yeah, Hollywood. It's a very good Hollywood point. Horse shitting on Jesus. <laughs> yeah. God damn it. Just like those Christians talk. God damn it. And again. And I think that's a perfect place to end this episode. Uh, but Mike, before we finish out here, like, you know, put yourself again around, you know, 1989. The Last Temptation of Christ has finally come out. He's made his passion project. What would you expect from Scorsese moving forward into the 90s? Uh, probably, you know, same old horse shit. Go back to some gangsters, you know, some mafia shit. Something really boring, uh, presumably going to be very forgettable after uh, these artistically challenging and satisfying yep. works. It'll be no mean uh, streets. <laughs> nope. Uh, you know, he got away with one with Color of Money, Mean Streets 2, which just ain't going to work for him. Not going to happen. All right. So uh, on our next episode, I guess the final episode of this month of our Scorsese Watch, we will be taking a look at, of course, 
kind of the ultimate like movie people think of when they think of Scorsese usually is Goodfellas. So that's what we will be checking out next. So if you'd like to hear more from us, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, just look up at Directed by Pod, or you can donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash a podcast directed by. 